Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14. Hating and Loving Christ is the title of this morning's message. I will attempt to get to verse 11, so that means verses 1 through 11. We are going to stand, and uh, would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery, and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table. A woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We are going to now start that walk towards the cross and the empty tomb with this 14th chapter. The men who hated Jesus Christ were publicly daring to defy their corruption and expose them, now plot his death. Mark and Matthew tell this same story. Matthew gives us a few more details, but both interject into this story of betrayal, this moment of love being poured out on Christ from one of his followers and yet the betrayal of another follower. It's a stark contrast. It's fraught with lesson for anyone who would consider that the Bible has put these two together on purpose. But Christ is in total control. Even though he is in his humanity, and he matured into uh, this uh, matured state of his humanity, if you will, as he grew in stature and favor with God and men, the Bible tells us, he is in total control of this crucifixion that is coming. His enemies, they don't realize this. He is in control of my life. And as you look at the crucifixion, if you're one of his disciples and you see him murdered and you go through those three days of blackout, 
You've got to be questioning your faith. Well, sometimes for us, it's more than three days that we're questioning our faith. Where is Christ? Where is the one that loves me? Why are these things happening? Why am I less the person that I, that I wanted to be? But he's still in control, absolute control. Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are numbered. And this is the Christ we are considering this morning. Returning to verse 1, Mark writes, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. That two days there, not necessarily a 24-hour period, it gets kind of difficult to track everything with the Jewish, you know, they, they, they count the days from sundown uh, to sundown, and we count it from midnight to midnight. That's our 24-hour run, and theirs is different. And we have to remember that as students of the Bible if, if we want to uh, get more from what the Scripture is saying, I believe. But I calculate this to be their Thursday and uh, beginning and still our Wednesday. They were at the Passover season. That means there would be quite a few Jews, a million or more men, converging on Jerusalem. This was mandated. God required assembly. He still does. Uh, New Testament and Old Testament. And God required men to show up at the house of God. There, the three holidays that this was demanded was, and we get this from Deuteronomy 16. I'll read it to you. Three times a year, your males shall appear before Yahweh, your God, in the place which he chooses. At the festival of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. How many lessons are in that one verse? Many do show up to the house of God empty-handed, empty-handed, empty-hearted, empty-headed. Uh, this is something we should be mindful of for in our own lives, not critical of others, but concentrating on ourselves. As the writer to Ecclesiastes said, says, uh, you better be careful when you go to the house of the Lord. It's not a trivial thing with God. It shouldn't be with us. Anyway, the Passover began in the first month of the Jewish calendar on the 14th day. And uh, with the slaying, incidentally, of the Passover lamb. And we're not there yet. We're two days out, according to Mark's uh, writing in verse 1 of Mark 14. But it commemorated their being delivered from the messenger of death. The blood was put on the doorposts. And they were passed over. And those that did not have the blood on the doorpost, uh, the angel of uh, death, the messenger of death, did not pass over that house. And the firstborn was slain as judgment upon Egypt. Uh, God had warned them. He'd given them a way out. And they did not take it. And so uh, the, God intensified his, his dealings with Egypt. And for some 1,500 years, the Jews... Have celebrated their emancipation from Egyptian bondage with the Passover. And when the Jew spoke of the Passover, <clears throat> it included the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they would just, uh, when they said it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they knew that meant the Passover too, because as they were having the Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be starting, because at sundown the day transitioned, and so they were uh, considered together. The true Passover lamb, however, had been in their midst for over 33 years. 
Most did not know it. John the Baptist, he called it out early. About three and a half years before this event, John said he was in the world. John the Apostle is writing this. I'll get to John the Baptist saying in a minute. John the Apostle writes, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And nothing has changed in 2,000 years. The difference between the church and the world is the world does not know him. And by world, in the context of the scripture and how I'm using it, of course, we mean those who do not believe who live on the planet. He continues, John does, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Uh, This, uh, again, is Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, and the Jewish leaders will have none of it. They want to kill him, but not as the Passover lamb. They just want to silence him. But John the Baptist called it. He said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. Quite a powerful pastor he was. And the shedding of his blood would open this fountain of cleansing for all humanity, not just the Jew. This is what's so powerful about just thinking about it this way. You know, he's the Jewish Messiah, but he is the Christ. It now takes on a different language, a Gentile word. It's gone beyond Israel. They're included. They're very much a part of God's love. So are the Gentiles. Lest Satan, as he as we know he does, come and, comes and drives a wedge of division. But the shedding of his blood opens this fountain, making salvation available. John's Gospel, chapter 4, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, said Jesus, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. When you were born again, you who are born again, do you recall the excitement, the water that was welling up, going to spring out of you? And maybe some of you look back and you're not as excited about your faith anymore because you've taken so many hits that you thought Christ was going to protect you from. Christ says, I'm going to shield you within these problems, but I will not take them all away. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. Revelation 21 Jesus speaking, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water to li- of life freely to him who thirsts. He is the fountain of life. But the Jewish people as a nation would have to wait until the end of the great tribulation period for the fountain of pardon to open up on them as a nation. Zechariah the prophet wrote, In that day, that is the when Christ returns in glory, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. So go back to my original statement. He is the Passover lamb. And at his death, this fountain would be open. And this fountain would be for sin and for cleansing. Dealing with sin and cleansing it. The very thing we need. If we're ever going to get to that banquet in heaven, it is going to be through Jesus Christ. And the feast of unleavened bread, he says here in verse 2. This was the last meal it commemorated as slaves in Egypt. 
as they ate the Passover lamb, their bread, they would have already rid their homes of the leaven, the yeast that goes into the bread. And for seven days, this feast would, would last. If you were making bread and heading out of Egypt, packed up with as much as you could carry, having bread that was not bloated with yeast would be easier to carry. You'd stack more of it into your suitcase. Uh, kind of a, just a, you know, the Lord looking ahead. When he told the Jews to make the Ark of the Covenant, it was wood overlaid with gold. And the, the Levites would carry it. What if he had said, I want it made out of solid gold? Well, they would not have been able to carry it. Gold is very heavy. I remember years ago working in the airport loading planes. And it was every Tuesday, this armored car would show up. And we'd load gold onto this uh, flight to Argentina. And... Uh, it was just a small box, as wide as this pulpit, but not as tall, just a few inches tall. And it took two men to struggle to get that into the plane. Um, tried to take samples home, but uh, they, they didn't go for that. Anyway, my point is gold is very heavy, and God in his mercy gave them uh, the gold that he would see on the outside. And he... Um, what a blessing that was. I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. That would just take us away from this for the moment. But anyway, it says here in verse 2, And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery. These were supposed to be holy men. Why are they up to this deceit? Why are they liars and cheaters? Holiness depends on honesty and integrity and the truth of God. It cannot function under God, and find his favor, and at the same time, be dishonest, be deceitful, be false, and be murderous. We cringe when we find our pastors behave this way, and what about when we behave this way? Doesn't honesty mean something? When we, when, usually when people lie, it's because they're un, under some pressure. Maybe they're their image, or maybe they don't want something found out. It's always wrong. You shall not bear false witness. And I think that any Christian that is comfortable lying is in serious trouble. Their hatred of Jesus began when he defied their unholiness in public. Because they were pretending to be holy men with their robes and how they'd walk around, strut around and criticize everybody else and be these celebrity characters. And Christ called them out. He exposed their hypocrisy and they are now going to kill him for it. <clears throat> these same men, when they died, they stood before Jesus forever doomed. As far as we know, none of these characters repented, and the ones that would have repented would have found mercy. Luke chapter 13. There will be neat weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. Man, that's scary. Depart from me, I never knew you. On well, this case, though, these were not pretending to have known him. Revelation chapter 1, we read, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. 
Now, that is a direct reference to the Jewish people, but it does not leave out these characters. To those Jewish hearts among the Jews who approved of Christ's death comes judgment. Thank God there were Jews that did receive Christ. It's not anti-Semitic. These are the facts. Uh, uh, Peter, who was a Jew and loved the Lord and is in heaven, Never lost sight of who these guys were. And after Christ ascended to heaven and Peter began to come to the front of Christianity and began to preach with boldness, he let everybody know that they plotted the death of the Holy One of Israel. Acts chapter 2, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. Peter is saying the prophecy was fulfilled. But it was your choice to be against God. God was going to fulfill this prophecy. Here's an interesting thought. Judas was a pawn of Satan. And also of God. God in the sense that God is in control. He is sovereign. You are free to be wicked, but not, not out of God's control. Acts chapter 3, Peter continues. But you denied the Holy One. And the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. So there's Peter and he is holding them accountable and many of the priests were converted at his preaching. But he never forgot. We should have some of that. There should be sermons preached and experiences in Christianity that we never forget, that we use to the glory of God in our lives. It says here in verse 2, and put him to death. These guys played for keeps, did they not? That's what they were going to do. They wanted to put him to death, and they did. They wanted it not only to be death, but they wanted it to be shameful and painful. They did not want a quick execution. Verse 2, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. This is very important to the sovereignty of Christ and God, who, of course, Christ being God the Son. They said, not during the feast. They wanted to wait till the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread was finished because all the men were required to be there. And they wanted the multitudes to be diminished before they pulled their act. But he was arrested at the feast in spite of them because they weren't in control. Just like right now, the very hairs of your head numbers because God is in control. Men were in control of their choices but never in control of the outcome. He overrules their plans, forcing them to conform to his will. He controls every foe and bound them, the whole lot of them, to cooperate with the fulfillment of his purposes, his plan for salvation. He had found those whose hearts were wicked, wicked and would not change, and so he used them. Same with Judas Iscariot. God did not put a knife to the throat of Judas and say, you will be a betrayer. When, when Judas was born a baby and his mother looked into his eyes, she did not see a traitor. He was a child like everybody else. But as he grew, 
he decided to take that path of greed, that path of self. And God honored him. It's always amazing when you treat adults as a sum, treat some adults as an adult, and they're insulted. I mean, you said X, Y, Z, and I honored what you said. Now you're angry with me for honoring what you said. How does that work? If I said you're lying to me or dishonored you, you'd come at me for that. Well, that's just how it is. All of this could have been avoided in the lives of these men who were cast out at judgment. All they had to do was side with Jesus Christ, the very thing they refused to do. They would never give him the satisfaction of considering him a legitimate rabbi, let alone Messiah. And so we see him in control, deliberately moving towards the cross, the will of the Father and his will. The plan was set for salvation, not allowing the wicked to choose the hour or the method or the purpose. Later, he will drive Judas out into the night. When Judas goes out into the night, John says, and it was night. It's an intentional word to us. He will drive Judas out to earn his 30 pieces of silver at the hour of his choosing. Because again, he's going to send him out during the feast, not as his instructions were, not, you know, wait till after the feast. Later, he will also keep righteous Peter from interfering too. And he says, put your sword in its sheath. That's not how I'm, we do business here. It says, lest there be an uproar of the people. Well, part of the problem was the crowds considered Jesus Christ to be not only a miracle-working prophet, of, well, that's what they did. They considered him a miracle-working prophet. And a, a prophet means they preached the truth in holiness and righteousness. The people had this mindset from First Chronicles chapter 16. Touch not my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. And if they tried to arrest uh, Christ with the multitudes, uh, they feared that the civil disturbance would be disastrous for them. And even if the people did not get their hands on the leaders individually, the Roman authorities would. These guys are gangsters. That's how gangsters do business. They find someone getting away with opposing them, diminishing their profits. They look to execute them, to put a hit out on them. And verse 3, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Pardon me. Costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. You know, as I read these words, as I'm reading the scripture verses, I, oh, I want to say this, I want to say that. I, it's, uh, it's God's word so robust, but at the end of it, I, I hope when, it's, when it comes my time to die, if I die, that I'm still excited about God's word. If someone says, well, you got about 30 minutes to live, well, I, maybe I'm going to study something in maps and see how it relates to the prophets or something. I want to go out defying death. I want to go out saying I love God's word in season and out of season because it is real, not because it has become a favorite pastime of mine. And I enjoy when I read the scripture and study the scripture, I forget all about the boneheaded things of life to some degree. Except when we talk about the persecution. No, it's not. 
you know, you have to keep it real. That's where I'm going with it. What good is a Bible study if it's not real? If it's just religion. Or if it's just something that's interesting. Well, the story now moves from the haters of Christ to the lover of Jesus. It is the same story as found in John's Gospel, chapter 1, with Mary of Bethany. There are some little differences, not contradictions, additions, or, and omissions, yes, but not contradictions. You might think so, because John says six days before the Passover, this happened in Bethany. But Mark just said, well, two days before the Passover. Well, not, Mark's not even trying to keep the sequence. That was for what the Pharisees were doing, and he injects this into the story because it's setting up Judas. He's saying this was the last straw for Judas Iscariot when he finally decided he was going to trade on the Lord to the authorities. It was because his feelings were hurt. He was insulted. And that's why he's injecting this. And I hopefully develop this a little bit more. And uh, incidentally, for the Jewish writers, Old and New Testament to go out of sequence is typical. Uh, I don't know if it was that parchment wasn't available. Like, ooh, I made a mistake. I should have put that back there. But too late. Here it goes. Uh, I don't know what, the, what it is sometimes. Or sometimes it's easy. Like this one is relatively easy. Because when you get to verse 10 and 11, you say, oh, okay, now I see why he's put it in. It makes absolute sense. And so don't get caught up on the six-day, two-day thing if you have gotten there. Matthews does the same thing as Mark. Mark is uh, almost identical. Just Matthew gives more. <clears throat> so I treat them, as most commentators do, as uh, this event at Bethany matching the one in John chapter 12, not as a separate event. Uh, some do, not many, uh, continuing, he says, at the house of Simon the leper. Some suppose that Martha was the widow of Simon the leper. Well, that would fit if this is the same story as in John 12, the, the anointing with Mary. This would be Mary of Bethany. There are a lot of Marys going around in the Bible, as you know, which is a variation of Miriam. Uh, uh, otherwise, it is a different house and different story, but I don't, I don't believe that because the story is too close uh, and it, the repetition would be uh, redundant and uh, not right. Anyway, he sat at the table. This table that he sat at, there was uh, no chairs, low to the floor, probably in a U shape, and in, in the middle of the U uh, is where the servants would bring the food and place it on the tables. And so they're sitting on... Uh, like recliners, couches around this U-shaped table. A woman comes in, Mary of Bethany, again, is who I believe this woman is. And having this alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Now, spikenard is the Greek for pure nard. Nard is like nog. Eggnog? Who knows what it is? No, I'm kidding. I mean, as a kid, didn't you ever wonder, what is nog? I mean, what? anyhow. And why do we have to wait to Christmas to get the nog? Anyway, uh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about other goofy things. Uh, this is costly oil. Nard, a plant that grows, I'm told, in India and Nepal, up in that way. And 
Of course, you make an, an essential oil. Motor oil is essential, too, I should add. Uh, I know. <laughs> so, uh, and they used it as an ointment and perfume for special occasions because it was so, you know, costly. <clears throat> Therefore, it probably had been in the family a long time, and you just break it out every now and then. Evidently, not often, uh, maybe not at all, because she breaks the flask. She probably could not get the seal off, and then she's not fine. And, and then she uses it unsparingly on the Lord, which is an emblem of her devotion and love. She doesn't care about the cost of the oil. To her, it is more valuable to show him love than to keep this up on the shelf. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now, John 12 says it's his feet. Well, she had enough to do both. And um, that is what she did. Her love for him is going to memorialize this event. Not that she spent expensive oil, if Judas is telling the story, yes. But Christ is, of course, developing the story and the apostles are telling it. And what they're saying is, there's this outpouring of love on the Lord, and he took issue with anybody criticizing her for this apparently extravagant devotion. No other love is to be greater than the love we have for Christ. That's not always easy, because we can't see Christ as we can see some of, of, of each other. Our children, for example. First Peter now, remember, Peter, writing to Christians and uh, who were persecuted in 1 Peter, and he writes to them and he says, you know, you didn't see Christ. I did, but you love him just as much as me. And he was taken by this. And so he writes, he says, whom having not seen, you love. Though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It struck him. Here's Peter in the assembly singing worship songs with the people. And he's saying they have just their intensity of love for Christ is matching my intensity. And I walked with him. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. This, this uh, unfair life that we face raises its Medusa head with questions and challenges about God and our faith. And our love for him, God knows that. And God says this, you know, when you go through struggles and you don't understand, and you're actually offended with God, like, why doesn't he do something? And Jesus said this, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The one that can serve me without explanation is the one that's going to be blessed. Once they find out who I am, they'll trust that much first. But if they make it a condition of serving me, if they say, if Christ, you are offending me, I can't serve you anymore, then you become Judas. It is profound beatitude, is it not? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Her Lord's enemies were out to kill him. I'm not so sure she knew it. He knew it. He's the one that says, she's doing this for my burial. She doesn't say that. She's just pouring love out on him. She may have. She is saying, this is all I can do for him anyway. 
I can just show up and love on him. Uh, it, to others, it may be meaningless. We just saw our young brother just play the song for the Lord. Uh, that's, the sim- that's, the, that's the same spirit. This is what I can do. These last acts of love and loyalty by various believers are in contrast to these acts of violence that are directed towards him. And it must have been bittersweet for Christ to see her loving on him, but knowing in a few days her heart was going to be smashed. Isaiah says he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So the next time you're grieving how God's handling something, you understand he knew. He understood that too. He, had, he saw all the beggars, the lepers. There were people he could not reach. He knew there were people that he would heal, and they still wouldn't believe him. He knew that Judas would be used by him to do miracles, to hear his preaching, and still rebel against him. How do you not have a broken heart over something like that? Verse 4, but there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? John names him. John said this was Judas. John chapter 12, verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used, he used to take what was put in it. He was an embezzler, a thief. And so when this protest is, this money, why is this oil being wasted? How do you consider it wasted if it's poured on Christ? Uh, Who asked you, Judas? He doesn't set doctrine for us, not positive doctrine. Some of the disciples appear to have sided with him, supposing that he knew what he was talking about. And so that's why when Mark and Matthew tell the story, they, they do not isolate it to Judas. Mark, John does. He drills it down. Look, Judas was the one that started this. Some of the others kind of said, yeah, that's a good point. Church troublemakers can be very effective leading people who did not come to follow them. You could say, you know, Peter could have said if John you know, joined him with with. Judas, just for example, Peter could have said, what are you doing? We didn't come here to listen to Judas. We came here to listen to Christ. And thus, leading people out of a church that God led them into happens too frequently. Seeds of discord amongst brethren, in which the Proverbs in chapter 6 make it very clear, God hates sowing seeds of discord amongst the brethren. If you know someone that's going to a church and they love their church and they're getting fed the word of God, don't try to get them to come out of their church. Encourage them. Again, by this time, he had been a long-time embezzler. So he reasons. We could have sold all of this oil for a big profit. I would have had more to embezzle. There would have been a larger kitty for me to take from. A pot, that is, of cash. So he was being slighted, and it was just starting. Verse 5, he continues, For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. She was criticized for loving on the Lord, for spending her money her way on her Lord. 
2 Corinthians 9, so let each one of you, pardon me, so let each one give as he prospers in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. She's not complaining. She's going to anoint his head. And that doesn't mean pour a drop on. She's going to pour it on. And then his feet. Christian men who get to be advisors to the church, there's lessons they have to learn. Not all of the lessons of the business world, of business acumen and God's stewardship, they don't always match. Uh, For the church, it's not always about profit margins, uh, the dollars. A church can be solvent and have profits secondary. We have enough to live off of, to do what we have to do. In a business world, that wouldn't fly. You've got to be at those margins, and that's understandable. I'm not saying one is wrong and the other is right. I'm saying they're not an automatic fit. She noticed that they were ganging up on her, and so did Christ, verse verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. I don't think that was his tone. I think he got a little sharp with them. I think he knew he was, I think he intentionally provoking uh, Judas because he knew that he was going to be traded on the feast, at the feast, and not after. And this was the moment. Now, the bystanders could hear their murmuring and their criticisms, but they also heard him stick up for her, just like you do. When you're confused sometimes and the Holy Spirit comes along and encourages and says, I'm with you. You're right on this. But, you know, that's not enough. It's not enough to be right, as much fun as it is. It's just, there's more to it. You've got to learn how to use being right. Uh, those who have discernment uh, when they're right and others do not have it, it's very painful because no one's listening to you. In fact, they could be attacking you, your own brothers and sisters in the faith. Ah, you're overboard with that. Oh, that's not going to happen. And then it happens. And then nobody wants to come. You were right. <laughs> they, sometimes they dislike you even more for being right. Anyway, she has done a good work for me, he says. There are works by Christians that are outstanding, quite amazing. But there are also works that are not so good. To each... <laughs> I tried, I tried. I tried holding that back. For those of you who missed it, here it is again in slow motion. So, the seven churches in Revelation, to each one, Christ brings up works. And uh, it was it's unfortunate that the five churches who were rebuked, he addressed, he said, you know, you're doing these works. Well, to Laodicea, he said, your works are... Eh. But to the others, he said, you're doing these works, but that's not enough. You have bad doctrine, or you have no love, or you have a name that you're alive, or you are supporting those who hate me. And so he, he dealt with this, and we have to listen. Okay, she's done a good work. I want to do a good work, and I, I don't want any abu- rebuke attached to it. I want to just hear him say, well done. Not, well done, but as he did to the seven churches. And so there is a great lesson here, to not take lightly. She's done a good work for me. In their face, he goes with this, verse 7, For you have the poor with you always, and whatever you wish, 
You may do them good, but me you do not always have. There's always somebody trying to tell you how to spend your stuff, is there not? Uh, there are plenty of opportunities to minister to the poor. In fact, he could have told Judas, you know, which he was telling him, you don't have to wait for me. You can go do that at any time. If one of uh, somebody in the church is struggling, don't, it's not a burden of the church. What about you? You help that person out. Uh, the New Testament gives strict guidelines on this when Paul, because people were abusing the church. It is not the primary burden of the church to address social services. It is the primary burden of the church to preach the word to a society who will address social services. This is the history of Western civilization. Hospitals, asylums, these things came out from the hearts of Christians, from their faith in Christ. Slavery was put down because of Christian people and their influence on society. So it does matter, and I'm a firm believer. I have a cash register in my office, believe it or not. And that's not a prosperity thing. When, years ago, we were, we were going to, you know, uh, have a, a sort of a, a restaurant in the, caf, in the cafe. And so we began doing that. Oh, let me just grab the cashier because we'd have to charge for the, for the food, discounted. But nonetheless, it would be there. God put the kibosh on that. He just swooped down after I bought the $100 cash register. It's still in the box, never been taken out. He just swooped down and said No. And what he said to me was, be a church. Just be a church. It's all I need from you. Be a church. Not an entertainment center. Not this, not that. Just preach the word. And you know, there's a long list of Christians who don't care for that. They have an agenda. And they think the church should be part of that process. The church owes you truth and love. A place to assemble and receive the word. And everything after that is bonus. And this is why so many churches, I think, become entangled in things they should not. And the next thing you know, they're social centers. The word is not preached anymore. I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it happens a lot of the times. The poor you have with you always. Don't try to get the church to do your work. You go do it. And so that's what he is saying. Listen, this money could have been taken as, you know, ours, our little entity here, and we could have dealt. And he says, you go do this. A lot of people are insulted by this because they think it's insensitive and it's callous. It's not. It's quite the other way around. If you can keep the church pure, then the people that are in that assembly, they will do good works. And this has been the case in history. It just doesn't last long before the church, that, those good churches are eventually infiltrated. Uh, either the pastor dies and another guy comes in and he's not that, all that, and you've got problems. Well, I've spent enough time on that. Let's, uh, move, and church history, of course, is loaded with the behavior of Christians who were influenced by good preaching from the word that went out into the world and did great things. Uh, how many people left that church in uh, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, Charles Spurgeon's church, and they went out into the world and did so many things because of good preaching. Anyway, verse, verse 8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Uh, nobody can meet every need. 
but we can meet the ones that God gives us. You may have a need, you know, this is this thing in human, with humans, right? I'm now a vegetarian, you got to be one. Uh, we, 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 we are prone to do things like that. I'm now starting to do exercises, you've got to start doing exercise. I'm getting in shape, you, I mean, on and on and on. We've got to watch that kind of stuff. Anyway, he says she has done what she could, what she could, what she could. She's not doing what Peter could. And Peter is not being called to do what she could. He doesn't say, Peter, where's your flask? As a church, we support missions that do things that we can't do. Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, holding fast the word of life. To Titus, he says, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound teaching both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Take that away from the church and you just have something else. We're no longer the called out ones. She, it says here in verse 8, She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Um, to her, again, the value was in loving Christ, not in cashing in on her family heirloom of Spikenard. His apostles, they blocked out the thought of death, his death and his resurrection. That was almost anathema with those guys. But he kept putting it in front of them. They were fairly warned. None of them should have been shocked by his death on paper. But when it comes to human emotion, what would you think? I mean, just in sports, if you had a hero that every time he got up to bat in baseball, he hit a home run, the one time he gets a triple, you'd be pretty upset. Where's the home run? Well, with Christ here, someone who just healed people, there's nobody, he was untouchable until he said he could be touched. And they weren't ready for that. Verse 9. Assuredly, I say to you. Now, he's putting them in their place, and I think his tones are pretty firm. I don't think this is that soft, gentle tone. I think he's, he's a little upset that they attacked this lass for showing love because greed was the motive. He saw verse 9, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. He could have said that about a lot of things. He could have said that about Peter walking on the water, but he says it about this one. As, as I am doing now and other pastors when they come to this, and when you, if you share this word, we're fulfilling this prophecy this promise, and we're doing it usually without protest. But there's more. So he put Judas in his place. He's the leader of this little mini in, in, uh, rebellion. Verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. You see the connection? He starts out, they want to kill him. Mark puts this story in about when Judas got put in his place. And now he says, now Judas is the, the straw that broke the camel's back. It's a connection. Even though it happened days earlier, from where we are with the, the narrative of the, the high priest, he ties it in for us. He says, there's where it's... It was always there. He was embezzling. He was not... He, he pretended to be part of the congregation, but he was not. 
And now he says this, this is the moment where he finally decides, okay, he marched into to Jerusalem uh, on that Palm Sunday. He didn't take over the city. Now he's wasting profit. He, this guy is just not for me. And this is how he is thinking. thinking. His conscience seared with a hot iron. Insulted for being corrected. Now, you... Christian adults who may from time to time have to be corrected. Maybe it's the spouse. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's the preaching. Maybe it's a friend. How about you children of all ages? When you're corrected, when you know you're wrong and you are corrected, forget about if it's gentle or harsh, just by the facts, what is your response to that? Well, here's what the Proverbs says. And the Proverbs was written for people who can't figure it out on their own. That's us. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. But he who hates correction is stupid. There it is. I didn't write it. That's it. That's, exact, that's a perfect translation from the Hebrew. It's, it's almost like a parent saying, are you stupid? What, are you, what were you thinking? Uh, and, you know, and so you either get angry when they're right or you submit. And things get better very quickly. Why do wrong people hate to be caught? Uh, well, I mean, I understand why they hate to be caught, but why do they then turn against the person that, for pointing out what they just did in front of everybody? Liars hate to be lied to. That's another. Liars hate to be caught lying. In a sense that... They won't admit it. And they get that smug face. You know that look when you've busted somebody for lying and they get that look. You want to just, you know what, the only way to deal with you? But you can't always do it. You, uh, it it's, is it okay to beat up somebody if nobody catches you? <laughs> no, it's not okay. <laughs> we chuckle because that's what we'd like to do sometimes. Verse, but one thing I like about, I'm almost done. Cartoons. The old ones, not the, you know, the Bugs Bunny ones, the Looney Tunes, they expressed human emotion without real consequence. I mean, you could drop a piano on somebody that irritated you and they wouldn't die. <laughs> you could give him a bomb, he'd blow up and he'd be there all, you know, singed and everything, but then he'd be back in the next scene. Unfortunately, life's not that way. You can drop a bomb with just a few words and do devastation to somebody. And so we have to be careful. Verse, verse 11, and when they heard it, <coughs> pardon me, not the cough. That's, I wasn't illustrating what they heard. And when they heard it, and oh, I should add, in this day and age, it's allergies. It comes and it goes. <laughs> be blaming me. Anyway, this is what gangsters do with verse 11. And when they heard it, they were glad, glad that Judas had come to them and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Conveniently. How convenient, we say to people, when they take the evil path because the right way is too difficult. Uh, you know, the saying, any dead fish can swim downstream. It takes a live one to go against the stream. And that's what righteousness is. Righteousness goes against the stream of this world. It swims in the opposite direction. 
and the opposition can intensify. Uh, but that, that is uh, our calling in life, is to not go with convenience, nothing wrong with things that are convenient, so long as they do not uh, silence righteousness, what is correct. This is what gangsters do. They look for an opportunity to off the opposition. Matthew 26, verse 15 gives us what Judas said in response. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. People still reject Christ, and they do it for far less than 30 pieces of silver to this day. What are we going to do about that? Just keep growing in Christ. That's all we have to do. If we grow in Christ, he'll direct us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, uh, what, what really has changed in the behavior of people? We have those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. For calling it like it is, for telling the truth about them. And then we have those who love you. And hopefully we're in that number. And we thank you for these things, these lessons, that is, that come off your, your word, from your word, off your pages to us, that we could consider them, make whatever adjustments are necessary, and pursue them. If you have been watching online or if you're here in the church and you've not opened your heart to Christ, your sins are on you. You will not be forgiven. You won't hear when you get to heaven, you weren't so bad. It takes one sin to damn a soul. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ to remove the penalty. Because he died in your place. He took the punishment for sinners. And that being so, to benefit from his death and resurrection, to have salvation, you have to willfully come to him. He'll force no one into heaven. If you make this prayer in earnest and mean it, God will receive you and you will be his. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I come to you and I ask you to forgive me because you are the one I've sinned against. And you're the only one that is good enough and great enough to take my judgment upon yourself in my place. I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to receive me that from this day forward, not only would I be saved by you and you alone, but that you would be my Lord over my life. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer in Jesus' name, may they not hesitate to share their confession when invited. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have made that prayer this morning, whether you're online or here, you're invited to share it with one of the pastors. You are strongly encouraged to do so. Why start a confession of faith with hesitancy and shame when you can step up right, uh, right to other people who love the Lord Jesus Christ as you do and make your confession public? Uh, if you have done that we, and you're in the church, Meet with one of the pastors. If you've done it online, call the church. Ask to speak to a pastor would be my first advice. Uh, pastors to my left and right, if you have prayer requests or praise reports, 
would and uh, the teens I'll be trying to pick you off one and one at a time asking you how it was up at camp so don't be nervous if I uh, come and ask you these questions just tell me what was fun would you stand please Next year, the teens had so much fun this year, we're going to let your parents stay with you for the week. <laughs> Put an end to that fun. We're not going to do any such thing. <laughs> the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And to that, the righteous would say, Amen. Amen.